Welcome to the King and Culture Podcast. I am Seth Trout here on the King and Culture Podcast. We critique the hell out of culture. Hey, welcome back to the King and Culture Podcast. I'm Seth, and I'm here with a special guest, Dr. John Delhuse. So I first met John when I was taking Greek exegesis course at Phoenix Seminary. And so John did not teach me the importance of the Bible. My mother taught me that. But John did teach me a lot of how to read the Bible. He's uh, very steeped in the early church patristics, uh, the fathers and mothers, the early, the early writers. And his approach to the scriptures is worshipful, personal, uh, engaged, uh, and so I remember being captivated by his uh, prayerful reading of the text, not just kind of cold academic autopsy on the Bible. And so a lot of the way that I read the scriptures has been shaped by him. Uh, not only is he Dr. John De Jose, but he's a fellow elder. Uh, he's a co-laborer. He's a churchman, a church person, a church leader. And he's written some helpful stuff on the book of Revelation. And today I invited him to this podcast so we could talk about how do we actually make sense of the book Revelation, and more than just make sense of it, how do we submit ourselves to it? How do we be formed by it? How do we shape it? And so, John, thanks for being here. Thanks for driving out this morning. Oh, I'm, I'm really happy to be with another part of Redemption. And, and Seth, you know, um, I love you, and I've got a real kindred spirit with you when it comes to your pastoral heart. And I love the fact that you, before you even asked questions you just you were more concerned about how I'm praying for our church and I really appreciate that so happy to be here yeah uh, so for those of you who don't know Remption Gateway and Remption Alhambra are uh, one of the 10 uh, each one of the 10 congregations and how long did it take you to drive out here this morning uh, it was a 45 minute uh, journey yeah it's beautiful though sun was coming up yeah, got to receive the rising sun. So let's start that level of prayer as you're thinking about. So we're we're going to be teaching through the book of Revelation this fall. And there's a handful of people who are extremely excited about that for reasons that make me nervous. Uh, <laughs> a handful of people who are extremely nervous about it for reasons that make me also nervous. And probably the biggest chunk of folks in our church uh, are just looking forward to it. Like I think Great. John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book in the Bible except for Revelation. Yeah, that's right. So it's a difficult, mostly because I think people admittedly go, this is a hard one to wrap our heads around. Uh, in your experience teaching this book uh, to students or even to church members, why do you think this is such a hard book for people to wrap their head around? Yeah, well, I, you know, the Reformation was interesting because Revelation was an extremely popular book in the medieval period. And I'd say probably the only book that was a little more popular was Song of Songs. Now, both books were read in a heavily allegorical way. And, and they were also read through the lens of what was called the Quadriga, and, which is a fourfold way of reading the, of, of the text. And so when the Reformers came along... Can you say more about the Quadriga? So like you're kind of asking four questions of the yeah, text. Can you yeah. unpack that? Yeah, and we, we may circle back to that because I think it's a helpful way to approach Revelation. But the Quadriga uh, developed out of uh, Jewish exegesis or interpretation of the Bible. And you basically begin with the literal sense. So all the scholastics like Thomas Aquinas and so on... 
they would start with the literal sense of the text. But then the idea was that if the literal sense um, didn't uh, provide the deep um, meaning or the, 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 the wholesome sort of application, it was an invitation to go further. So the next sense was called um, the allegorical sense. But what they really meant by that was how a later scripture will allude or quote earlier scriptures. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that on social media of just the thousands and thousands of cross-references in the Bible. It's really beautiful when you see how the Bible is just this one continuing conversation between God and his people. And in the book of Revelation, Greg Beale wrote a great commentary just showing the thousands of allusions and echoes of the Old Testament in Revelation, which is a fitting climax to the whole canon. So that's a very edifying way to read Revelation. Um, we don't like the word allegory for a reason we'll talk about. But uh, And then there was the homiletic sense or the application sense, you know, which uh, is called the historicist reading of Revelation. Um, if, if our people are aware of kind of the, the different approaches to the book of Revelation, the historicist uh, interpretation is that um, the Bible, particularly Revelation, is is anticipating and pointing to specific things happening in history. So, for example, uh, Luther uh, was ambivalent about Revelation. He didn't like it, didn't think it taught the gospel, and ironically, he didn't believe it revealed Jesus, which is kind of funny because it's the only book in the New Testament that actually gives a physical description of Jesus. <laughs> but uh, Luther wasn't a big fan about that. And Calvin followed suit, uh, like you said, not writing a commentary. And then uh, Zwingli didn't believe it was canonical. So he, he would have thrown it out of the, uh, of the Bible if he could have. And so, so are we violating our Reformed tradition by preaching the book of Revelation? Are, uh, we, are we being bad Calvinists. Well, well, what's funny is is the academics, the 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 bigwigs, didn't like Revelation, but it was still very popular among Protestants. But uh, what happened was is that they applied the historicist reading or that third way of reading the Bible. And incidentally, Luther and Calvin threw out the Quadriga; uh, they rejected it. But I think they rejected it mainly because they were trying to break free of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. And the Catholic Church had fully embraced the Quadriga, and it was the way that it was read in the university at the time. And so I think there were some polemics or some art, you know, there was, Luther was trying to find um, an authority principally from the literal sense of the text. Yeah, so you have some baby bathwater situation here. E- exactly. But the, the, the average Protestant loved Revelation, but what they did was they interpreted the Antichrist as referring to the Pope. Mm. So that's kind of the historicist way of reading it. But it's actually a way that the church has always read the Bible, which is the idea that it's God's word and that the Holy Spirit can illumine immediate meaning without losing the ultimate meaning. Um, the ultimate meaning, meaning was the fourth sense of Scripture, uh, which they called the the sacramental or the myst- the mystery of Scripture, which is what it ultimately points to in terms of its fulfillment. And Revelation, of course, is the quintessential book for that because it gives the climax 
um, of, of all things. But uh, so, so just summarize the quadrant. You have four things. You have the literal sense. You have like the illusion sense. You have the, the application or the so what sense. Then you have the, the f- looking forward uh, spiritual fulfillment sense. Yeah, I would almost call it like the Edenic or paradisal sense. Yeah. 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 And I remember you talking about this in seminary, how those, even like those four questions are shaped by the word paradise. That's right. P-R-D-S, press, and uh, res, dresh, and sod. And sod, yeah. Yeah, and how those like four Latin words, when put together, spell the word paradise or Eden. Yeah, yeah, they, they believe with the rabbis that when you read the Bible through those four lenses of those four senses, uh, Peshat, Ramez, Darash, and Sod, or Sod, that it was like a taste of paradise, uh, a proleptic experience of the end. And so it was... Can you tell me what the word proleptic means? Absolutely. Proleptic is an anticipatory experience. You could call it like a taste, you know, to use sensory language. Appetizer, maybe. An appetizer. Yeah. Apertif. <laughs> yeah. Right? Of um, the, the great feast or the great meal that is to come. That's great. So, yeah. so even just meeting with God in the scriptures was this appetizer for meeting with him in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, and, and I would say that that's actually what, that's why John wrote Revelation, was I think it was meant to be right alongside taking communion. You know, like what's interesting about Revelation is it's the only book uh, in the New Testament where there's actually a promised blessing for hearing and obeying what it has to say, but that's not private devotional reading there. The uh, setting there is the church, the assembled church. Um, And so you know that they were taking communion as an essential part of their worship of the resurrected Jesus. And I think what John was trying to say was that the word itself is sacramental, and there's an opportunity by hearing revelation to, yes, yearn and hope in the future, the better future, but also realize, you know, that Jesus can be with us or is with us um, now. That is great. I think about that, like in my marriage, how you have date nights and then you have going away on vacation together. There you go. You know, they're both, they're both (laughs) good in the real thing. One is better, but they're both good in the real thing. Yeah. Amen. But the, the, the date nights keep you connected. Yes. You know what I mean? They keep you connected to your wife, um, your spouse, and so that when the vacation comes, it's meaningful. Yeah, you're not having yeah. to catch all the way up on vacation. That's it's right. Like where you've been <laughs> the last year. So, All right, let's get into the text here. I think Revelation, I remember reading it as a kid and just thinking, I have no idea what's going on here. I remember reading the first maybe couple of chapters, and there's the letters to the churches, and you're going, I have a category for this. Then you start getting like these images and pictures, and you're going, can I get some drawings, please, because this isn't uh, registering. <laughs> Uh, but I think this is where the question of genre comes in, even the question of what is John saying and what is John hoping to accomplish with what he's saying? Like, what's the what's the so what here? Uh, but John calls his work apocalypsis. Yeah. Uh, which is the, we hear the word revelation, uh, which could mean unveiling, apocalypsis, but you hear about apocalypse and people think kind of Armageddon, end of time stuff, but John calls it, it's the revelation of John. John's apocalypse is another way to talk about the book. Um, how does the fact that it's apocalypse uh, change how we read it? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, yeah, like you said, apocalypsis simply means like a revealing or a disclosure. Uh, an unveiling is a great word because it anticipates um, the final chapters where the groom, Jesus, is presented to the bride or the bride's presented to the groom. And, and it's like what Paul was anticipating in Ephesians 5, you know, we're without any wrinkle or stain and the wedding can finally, you know, commence. But like I said earlier, Revelation is unique because it's the only book that gives a physical description of Jesus. Um, and yet, you know, what we see in the opening chapter, which is a anticipation of the parousia in chapter 19, where he comes back in a final way, um, you have a sword coming out of his mouth, and you've got um, imagery from Daniel uh, both in reference to a mysterious son of man who's going to sit and judge all the nations, but also some imagery taken from Yahweh uh, or the Ancient of Days, um, who we'd call you know God the Father, and in and, and those images commingle in this revealing of Jesus. And um, yes, there's a futurist dimension that we'll maybe we'll get to at some point, but. That's not really what John's trying to do there. What he's basically doing, I mean, it reminds me when I was a kid. I, I went to a play, and I remember walking in uh, to the theater, and there was this white screen uh, on the stage. And it was very bland and uninteresting. And I, I sat down, and the, and, and the lights went out. And all of a sudden, there was this backlight. And uh, when, the, when the backlight turned on, there was this um, Edenic scene <laughs> of trees and, and, and houses, and it all just sort of miraculously became visible, right, once the, um, uh, the light came along. And I learned later that it's called a uh, scrim. Scrim. A scrim, S-C-R-I-M. And, and that's really what I think, John is wanting to communicate, which is that we all live in a real world. We're in this theater, um, but we're not always conscious of the stage, right? But what an apocalypse does is it's like a backlight on a scrim. And for a few moments, as you're listening to the book of Revelation be read, um, you get to see the ultimate reality, right? The mm. unseen realm, to use a kind of a popular term on social media, right? Yeah. The, the unseen realm is what John wants to remind us of, right? As a way for us to be faithful to Christ in the present. Yeah, it sounds kind of like uh, when I go out at night with uh, a black light to look for scorpions. When I don't have the black light, there are no scorpions. Then I click <laughs> on the black light and I see scorpions. Like, is it fair to say apocalypse is kind of like the black light of like, here's what's there that you can't see? Yeah, and Seth, you know, what I love about your illustration is it brings in the negative side, which is good, because, I mean, scorpions, I think, are actually in the book, so, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, it not only reveals uh, more of God, it also uh, reveals evil, right? And it exposes, it exposes the idolatries around us in a profound way. Yeah, I think that the idea that there's something there that we can't see is terrifying to us. Like yeah. the, the idea of getting an MRI and being told there's something there you don't know about or same with an X-ray and, or the black, like, and so maybe I just keep going to the negative because I 
think about it more negatively, but there's, but there's like, what's the version of MRI that tells you good stuff that you didn't know about? What's the version of MRI that tells you bad stuff you didn't know about? Yeah. The only MRI that I like to hear is I, I didn't see anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing there. Yeah. 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 But that's a great, that's another great illustration. Yeah. yeah it's, it's the helping you see what you can't see. Right. Or trying to make you see what you're refusing to see. Yeah. And I like actually the MRI is a great illustration, man. You're going to have some great sermons. Uh, when you go into this book, because uh, what I loved about the MRI, um, unlike the scorpions, I mean, the scorpions, you just have to kill, right? Or displace, yes. right? That's, um, the, that's the goal, at least. Yes, to displace, to put them in their right habitat. But uh, with like an MRI, and if it's cancer or something like that, you know, it, it, you have to be responsive to the revelation, yeah. You know what I mean? So I like that image, which is... There's information. You're now accountable to do something. Yeah. Else. Once you see, you can't unsee. Yeah. yeah. Great. So apocalypse uh, means this revealing unveiling. Is there like a literary genre of apocalypse that we need to like be mindful of? Like a, you read a letter and the way that you are faithful to a letter is you understand the words as written. Yeah. Uh, versus these images, these pictures, this unveiling... Like I said, I, I can read the first chunk of Revelation and I have a category for it, but then all these images start happening. Yeah. And what's the right way to honor the author when I approach the genre of apocalypse? Yeah, that's right. You're, you're not going to read an Ikea assembly manual for a couch like a love letter from your wife, right? So Hopefully not, at least. No, hopefully. Uh, genre matters. And... And that's where Revelation is really interesting because it's it's a pure type of an apocalypse. In fact, that's the opening word in the text is apocalypse. Um, but it comes out of the prophets in the Old Testament. And I, I wasn't sure about this because I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but I sat down with um, uh, Dave, um, who is a part of the Missional Training Center, Dave Beldman, Mm-hmm. Uh, in surge school and is a part of uh, Peoria Redemption Peoria, and I ran this by him, and he seemed happy with it. Um, what we noticed is in the earlier prophets, like Hosea, there's a logocentrism, or a, well, I should say, a focus on hearing. There's a, there's a focus on hearing here, and there's also this idea that you need to hear and understand and respond. Yes. And it's it comes out of a context in which Yahweh, um, which Hebrew word for God, um, is trying to purify the Israelites from their idolatry, right? So there's, there's sort of an anti-visual piece to it. Whereas when you get to some of the later prophets, um, Isaiah and Ezekiel specifically, something turns, and all of a sudden the accent falls on scene, mm. right? And both of those prophets are able to see through the scrim into the throne room of God, right? To see the third heaven, if you will. And and then um, the, the need to be responsive to that. And so there is this tilt from hearing to seeing mm. that you can see in the exilic period. And and uh, Dave and I were saying it could be because after the exile in 586 BC, the people were largely purified of their idolatries. Mm. 
So it's almost as if once they were able to uh, give their attention to God and not be distracted by other images, paradoxically, God starts giving them images, mm. right? And then that leads to the incarnation. So you kind of you kind of have Israel initially wanting to bow down to Baal statues. That's right. And God is saying, no, hero Israel, the Lord is one. Like, hear, hear me. Listen to my voice. Listen to my words. Don't go looking for some statue. Don't make graven images. Stop looking for images. You people keep looking for images. And then once they finally believe in the spirit God, who is non-visible, he goes, now let me give you some metaphors to help you enter into my space. Absolutely. Is that's that, a, is great, that a fair way of saying Yeah, that's a really saying? great way of putting it. And I would just add that um, hearing and seeing um, impact the brain differently, and they impact our memory differently. And there's something about a searing image that is especially transformative for people. And I, and I, and I think it's the visual, because of it being so powerful, right, uh, like when you look at your uh, spouse, right, with great affection, <laughs> you know, there's something extremely powerful about imagery and pornography and all that is a distortion of that. But image is powerful, that sense. And and so it needed to be healed, right? But then um, after it had been healed, um, God wants us to see more of him, right? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Isaiah saw God. <laughs> now, that doesn't make any sense theologically <laughs> uh, before that, but when you realize, and John tells us this in chapter 12 in his gospel, that what Isaiah ultimately saw was the pre-incarnate Christ, right? He saw his glory. And so it, it um, in, so in terms of like discipling, um, to see something is particularly transformative, yeah, and that's where revelation is so powerful because you're seeing all these images, right, around the throne room of God, and they're meant to change us in, in big ways. Yeah, there's something about being arrested by an image or a picture. Like I think about, um, so I'm not a NASCAR person, and so if anybody listening is a NASCAR person, they'll be offended by this, but I can look away from NASCAR very easily unless there's a wreck happening. <laughs> then I feel arrested by the image. I must, I have to keep looking. You know, there's well, it's like me with hockey. <laughs> yeah. You know, when there's a fight that breaks out. Or, yeah. When, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's something like something uh, crazy happening and you yeah. like, what's you look harder at the insanity of the image. Uh, and so when you get to think about the genre of apocalypse, is that, is this kind of like this culmination of this God supplying images that are meant to arrest and form people? Is that, the main thing we're looking at here, or is there more dimensions going on to that than that? Well, there may be more, but I think that word arrest is powerful. Yeah, I love that. And and I think the idea would be to form our faith and hope uh, to be arrested in the now, right? Um, in the anticipation of the final coming, but to have some of that um, awe, right? To... And, and basically to re-enchant the creation that we inhabit, right? Great. So this apocalypse genre, I now have a question about, like, John's main goal here. Like, what's he, what's he seeking to do? Most of the time you read the New Testament, there's 
uh, and you're trying to understand a book, you're trying to understand the author's big goal or big purpose. Uh, you have uh, you wrote this in uh, one of your uh, commentaries. Is that what you call it? A commentary? Or yeah, a, or the, a reflection? You, could call it, you could actually just call it a quadriga yeah, one on of a your, particular book. Yeah, one of your reflections. Uh, you said, uh, there's little evidence of programmatic persecution of Christians in Asia during the first century. Uh, so the immediate enemy for most of John's readers was assimilation. Right, so that language of assimilation, that's sociological language, you know, if a, an immigrant joins a nation and they, they become a part of the culture, they want someone new comes to our church, uh, we, they take a class so they can become a part of like that. We call that our assimilation process. So it's not necessarily negative, but it's no. more describing the effect. But this idea that Christians might be assimilated, uh, the question, like, tell me more about why that's significant as we read the book. Yeah, well, you know, um, for a while... I referred to myself as uh, uh, French American. <laughs> I, I went through a season of like searching, you know, my ancestry and trying to find an identity. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's significant, right? And and again, uh, my my ancestors immigrated here from emigrated here from uh, Paris in the 1700s. Uh, so it's not as fresh for me as it is. Um, you know, some of my brothers and sisters at Alhambra that their mom crossed uh, the border of Mexico, you know, when they were three. Um, But uh, the ordering of things is important, right? Meaning, are, you know, are you primarily French? Are you primarily American? Um, Citizenship, you know, I, I, you know, when Paul talked about our citizenship being in heaven, you know, he was writing that to a bunch of Philippian veterans of the Roman army. And I don't think, no, I know that Paul had no problem with Roman citizenship. He was a Roman citizen. And he invoked it. From and time he invoked time. it, you know, to his advantage. Uh, and also for the advantage of uh, proclaiming the gospel, that protection. But uh, I think the point he was making there was a, a matter of order, right? And so you're right. I agree. Assimilation is not a bad word. It's another word for discipleship. And so, you know, our people, as, as people are being assimilated into Redemption Gateway, they're being assimilated into the universal church. They're being assimilated into the people of God, right? Uh, the people who've received um, the new covenant. And so that has to be their primary uh, identity, right? Now they can continue to live comfortable. Well, <laughs> they, they, they can continue to live with deep patriotism for the United States, um, even local uh, loyalty, you know, I'm very proud to be a Sonoran, you know, a Phoenician. I've lived here since I was seven years old, moved here in 1980. Um, I have a lot of regional pride, and um, I'm, I'm also proud. Uh, there's things, there are things to be proud about the United States historically. has done some good things. And so, yeah, it's... Um, the New Testament, in fact, you know, emphasizes the fact that all these different diverse cultural communities are going to be united in Christ without that identity being effaced, mm. right? And I think one of the most beautiful visions in Revelation, and it actually gets repeated a couple times, right, are all the nations worshiping Jesus, right, the the lion and the lamb. They're all gathered together, the... Um, 
sense you have is that they're all worshiping Jesus in their own languages, in their own cultural dress, with their own cultural memories and identity, and yet they're also, by the Holy Spirit, one people, right? They're, they're united. And, and so there's a tension there of um, assimilation and accommodation and, and the idea of, of you know, uh, we, uh, in, in some sense, um, my French heritage is important. Uh, and it's something that um, I think is valuable for me to explore in terms of self-awareness. Right, and what I'm, and and uh, and all these presuppositions and cultural assumptions that for me are just normative, but maybe if I was across the table from a Mandarin, um, would not see it that way, right? And just having that sensitivity to the fact that not every human being looks out at the world through the same lens, but that that cultural lens is a real powerful lens. In some ways, it's the first lens, right? The one that we tend to be the most oblivious to. And so I think what John's trying to do is he's wanting to make the reader aware of that cultural lens. And he does that by starting to poke at the Roman cult ideology that would have been everywhere in Asia Minor. You know, and we know that already in the New Testament, there is this um, assumption that Jesus is Lord. Uh, when Paul refers to Jesus as um, Savior and Son of God, those were literal titles that Caesar had taken for himself. And uh, so, so that's not just an affirmation, it's a confrontation. It's absolutely, yeah. Now, it, what's interesting is it, it is a confrontation only if the order's been reversed, mm. right? Like, I don't think... You know, no, I mean, Peter says, honor all in authority. So I don't think uh, Paul's point was to despise local authorities or even the emperor. Uh, You know, Romans 13 seems to have that um, assumption about government and being placed by God and so on. But But when the Roman imperial cult required Christians to pinch incense on an altar as sacrifice, right? That's when um, there was an ideological conflict, right? And it was, it was at that point that, you, that Christians began to be uh, executed um, under Roman authority. Yeah, so, so someone here is saying is like this danger of assimilation is this threat to put Rome over the church. That's right. Yeah. You can't have like first loyalty. Yeah. It's sermon on the Mount stuff, right? You can't serve God and mammon. You can't have two masters. Yeah. Cause I see. So there's like this interesting tension in revelation and like in revelation 21. And if you disagree with this reading of it, you can let me know, but it talks about how the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in Mm -hmm. that there's like this dignifying, uh, at least nod to different cultures developing and different humans across the globe, the good things they've developed will be brought in. To the Absolutely. Yeah, that's, and, yeah. And at the same time, John's saying Rome is out to get you. Pay attention. She's a beast and scorpion. Uh, you know, there's, she's a harlot. And, and there, so there's like this tension of uh, 
there's good things in all nations and but describing Rome as a beast. Well, we talk, you know, the word for it is cultural appropriation, right? So, you know, you have all these cultures with the arts and beautiful, wonderful things that um, God wants us to bring to him into the New Jerusalem. But, you know, what what does Hollywood do, right? Hollywood makes a movie, exploits, (laughs) or any number, right? And, and, And I think that's where you have the great prostitute depicted, as this huge mouth that's just consuming and taking everything that the nations ultimately were intended to bring to the feet of God, right? And But I absolutely agree with what you're saying um, because I grew up in a tradition, a dispensational tradition, where um, there was massive discontinuity between this present existence and the age to come. Everything's going to burn. And so we took the verse in Second Peter very literally. And so the idea was, you know, why, why write the great novel, right? Why, why work on your art and get it to a place like a Van Gogh, right? Or, you know, why uh, take on any great project? Because it's sort of like polishing the windows on the Titanic as it's going down, where I think evangelicalism has taken a deeper look at church history and ways of understanding revelation um, where there's more continuity than I think people realize. And, and God created us to be creative. You know, he created us to, to, to make things and to work and to participate in his creation. And, 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 and so, you know, the, the interesting thing about revelation, the way it ends is we're back in the Garden of Eden, but now the Garden of Eden is inside of a city. Mm. And it's not like a return to primordial conditions. Adam and Eve are no longer children in adult bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Jesus is the ultimate Adam, and the church has grown up. And the church is diverse of all these nations comprised in it, in her and and now we have gifts we have things that we're bringing into the new heavens and the new earth um which in a sense validates our time here on this planet right yeah. <laughs> and 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 the work of um our ancestors and, and some of the best things that humans have accomplished has been through humility surrendering to god and participating in projects that take centuries to perfect. Yeah. Right? Like slavery, for example. Took centuries and centuries and centuries, but eventually we got to that place, right, in the West as a church. Yeah. It takes a long time to do it, and a, um, sometimes even a longer time to undo it. Yeah. Yeah. So this, the early church temptation is to become overly assimilated into Rome. Now the current American church uh, you see, obviously there's similar patterns here that we become, uh, too thoroughly American and not enough kingdom of God citizens. We become intoxicated by the, like you talked about the Roman cult. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody would describe America as having a cult. Uh, right. Mostly because people don't use the word cult to refer to anything except for like a small religious sect. But when you say like the like there are obviously images, you know, like Rome had Roma, yeah. like she's this 
seductive woman and you're being enticed by her and she's great and beautiful, you know, and is, is there a way in which, uh, we as Americans, like we have lady Liberty, is there a way in which, uh, like the American, uh, thing parallels the Roman thing? Is it totally different? Is it similar, but yet somewhat different? How do you, how do you read that? I know we're getting on. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have to go there, right? If we're going to shepherd and also, be obedient to the text ourselves, you know? And so like when I was in eighth grade, uh, I, I did that trip to DC, you know, Washington, DC. I think most kids have that trip. And, and it was funny because like Rome originally had no white marble, but Julius Caesar loved white marble. And so he imported white marble from everywhere. <laughs> and, and then, you know, over the next 50 years, Rome became this white marble city with all these great buildings and so on. And, and it's, it was funny because, like, I walk into Washington, D.C., all the buildings are Roman buildings, Yeah, you know, with the statues and the white marble. And, and so it's really overt. But I want to maybe say something a bit more nuanced, meaning – um, I think what we're wrestling with in the United States is actually a post-Constantinian issue, mm. meaning, um, you know, I'm about to go to um, the Middle East in a week, and I'm going to be working with pastors and sisters and brothers where it's illegal to evangelize and even to assemble. And and so for them, the pre-Constantine context in which John is writing is very real for them, right? Can, can because you, can is, you unpack the Constantinian idea? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. So um, Constantine was the first, I'm going to say Christian emperor. You know, there's a big debate about wh- whether or not he was ever a genuine Christian. How Christian was he? How Christian. And I think once you start getting into that conversation, it gets very murky and judgy. Yeah. You know, he... He was baptized. Now he did wait till the end of his life, but <laughs> he was baptized and and he um, did some good things like the calling the Nicene Council and so on. But um, at that point, um, the it actually became advantageous to be associated with Christians, and so so before that, it was a liability to be a Christian. It was a liability after Constantine. It's an advantage. It's to be an a asset. Yeah. And, and, and then when you read Eusebius of Caesarea, who was an early church father, the way he describes Constantine overlaps a lot with Jesus, right? And incidentally, that's also when the church became all-millennial versus pre-millennial. So which like we Constantine may, is saving the church yes. type language? Yeah, it's sort of like, man, we've been suffering for centuries, but now Constantine is here. And now, right, the kingdom of God can come to earth. Kind of second Messiah type. Almost, almost, yeah. And, and, and so the, yeah, and so my brothers and sisters in the Middle East, um, in Muslim nations, the authorities view Christianity as a danger, right? And, 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 and they, when they gather, it's sort of like the communities, the seven churches in Asia Minor that, John writes to, where they they could very well have spies, right, listening in, which incidentally is why I think Revelation is so heavily coded and hard to understand. Um, it was sort of like, you know, Negro spirituals 
pre-Civil War where slaves had a coded language that they could communicate with each other and they understood the story, but the slave owner would be kind of oblivious to his role in it, so to speak, you know. So it helped the person in authority feel non-threatened despite being heavily criticized. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's definitely that that's going on in Revelation. And it's kind of like Jesus with the parables, where at one point he just stopped speaking publicly in a frank way and just started speaking in parables, right? And then if you want to join, I'll explain them to you. Yeah. But if you're going to stay on the outside and be unrepentant, then you're just going to get allegories, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's actually kind of a helpful way to understand Revelation. But the point I'm it's, making— it's, it's also generally encouraging that you're going— this is hard to understand, not because I'm an idiot, but because that was somewhat the goal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it normalizes the feeling of uh, of not immediately grasping it. So that's uh, a- yes, and 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 if any brothers and sisters in our church are struggling with revelation, they they're not alone. And for two thousand years, Christians have complained about how hard it is to understand it, right? But like, what I'd say is the United States is in a unique situation where it's a different kind of assimilation. And what I mean is that where Jesus was viewed as a threat to Caesar before Constantine, Jesus became Caesar after Constantine. Mm -hmm. And I think what we have to wrestle with as a culture, because of our Christian heritage, largely Christian heritage, is where Jesus has been co-opted and distorted into a national icon, right? Who validates our value, you know, what we hold to be dear, um, and may not necessarily reflect what the four gospels have to teach us about that. So that's, yeah. that's I think, our... We're kind of like in the book of Acts, there's Simon the magician who wants to use Christ and, there you not, go. and not submit yeah. to Christ. Yeah. It's like the, a lot of American culture is using Jesus, not submitting to Jesus. Yeah, and what's sad is there are a lot of innocent Christians, you know, well-meaning Christians um who haven't been discipled well um and part of that's because we don't really preach the gospels. Uh we we really hit Paul's letters and things that don't force us to look at Jesus. You know, whereas, you know, Revelation like the Gospels, forces us to look at Jesus and to see what the Holy Spirit reveals around us. Yeah, so it sounds like one of the hopes for listeners and just Redemption Church as we go through this is to presume that we might be overly assimilated into American culture and be on the lookout for it. Is that a, is that a fair thing to bring to the text? Yeah, I mean, I wake up in the morning with the assumption that I've assimilated um, and that I want to become a citizen of heaven Mm. Uh, and that's going to be a lifelong discipleship process. Yeah, that's great. I, I love the way you're connecting that word assimilation discipleship. I've actually never heard that before. And and the question to ask is, to what extent have I been discipled by not Jesus? All the various voices, pop music, news media, um, talking heads, radio, all the, like there's all these things are discipling me. And a lot of them are doing so in a way that's incongruent with Jesus, and I need to be aware of that, that I'm constantly being discipled and counter-discipled and re-discipled and undiscipled, that if discipleship is being taught and being formed and being shaped, that uh, 
assimilation on the sociological side, discipleship on the spiritual emphasis side, those things are always going on. Yeah, that's really helpful, Seth. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll have people come up to me in church and they'll say, I want to be discipled, right? And my response is, we're always being discipled. Yeah. What you're saying is, I want to be taught by Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I want to change my discipler <laughs> yeah, exactly. as much as I can. I want to try to not be. Yeah. Uh, so this re- revelation gets painted, kind of ch- changing gears here, as a used language parousia, uh, which is not English as far as I know. So, but you talk about there's this uh, final parousia, right? The end of Revelation, the book ends with this. Uh, Final, like the word final gets used a couple of times, but you talk about like micro parousias um, and how the book moves from micro to final. Um, Can you talk about what the word parousia is and how there's these little parousias leading up to a final parousia, even that might connect to antichrist, how there's like many antichrists have come and then there's this the antichrist. Can you unpack some of that uh, end timesy jargon for us? Yeah, happily. Um, yeah, you know, becoming, you know, getting personal. Um, I suffered a lot uh, when I went to ASU, uh, and I'd already, I, I've already shared, like, I was discipled in a kind of a dispensational reading of Revelation, which was an emphasis on the future. And I remember I took this Bible as literature course, and I was thinking. It would be a discipleship kind of course. I was pretty naive, you know, uh, but I remember the professor the very first day in the class was stuffed. It was a very big class, and everyone, as far as I could tell, we were all, you know, Christians. <laughs> and Similarly naive Christians. Yes. ASU is going to help me in my spiritual formation. <laughs> so, so I remember, like, this. he did this right at the beginning. He, he comes, he, he walks up to the front of the classroom, and he says, open up your Bible, to the very last verse, you know, and uh, so we went there, and Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, and he did it in a real dramatic way, you know, he he read the verse, he closed the Bible, put it on the pedestal, and, and then he looked out at us, and he said, those are the saddest words ever written. Wow. And then he's like, all right, let's look at the syllabus, you know, <laughs> so, and I was stunned, uh, just because he forced me to think about something, right? Which is, um, you know, those words were written 2,000 years ago. And so, uh, you know, if we're going to read the Bible literally, which is what I had been trained to do as a dispensationalist, then it really has Jesus sound like a false prophet, right? Because um, he did not come back quickly. And the only parousia I was aware of and by the way, the Greek word parousia means presence or coming sometimes, but mainly presence. Is arrival a fair rendering or is that? Arrival is possible. Yes, that yeah. works there as well, uh, depending on the context. And ever since the Nicene Creed, um, we as the church have looked forward to the parousia. And the article is important there, the parousia. And by that, what we mean is, in a sense, there will be no more scrim, right? Jesus will come back in even more explicitly than he did in the incarnation because 
in the incarnation, he came, but he was disguised. You know what I mean? Like he was hidden. Um, James, Peter, and John got to see his deity, his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But most people just saw a Jewish guy. Yeah. Right. If they saw him at all. And, and so when um, that scrim is removed and everyone will see him as fully human and fully divine, hypostatic union, but will really see the God piece, right? The God part, not part, but his, his deity. Um, every knee will bow, Philippians 2, right? Um, and, and it'll be this inevitable submission, <laughs> right? An acknowledgement of his authority, Um all conflict will cease at that point, right? The final battle of Armageddon, all that, it's over. No more no more battles. And, and that's the parousia. And that's what we look forward to. And by the way, I believe that that is yet to come. Um, preterism, full preterism is not orthodox because it rejects the Nicene Creed. Um, and preterism was the belief that the parousia happened in AD 70, when Jesus came back to destroy the temple, and now we're in the... Is, it, is that a common view, preterism? Well, it's becoming more and more common, and I've I've had people in the church over the last 20 years, um, you know, adopt some of that. Um, R.C. Sproul was not a full preterist, but he popularized partial preterism. preterism. And by the way, there's some truth in partial preterism. We can talk about that or not, but... Uh, it sounds like they're accidentally turning a micro parousia into the parousia. Oh, that's it. That's exactly what happened, right? Because what the preterists did was they interpreted Revelation as being t- entirely fulfilled in AD 70. So all the language of Rome and um, the great prostitute and the birth pains and all of that was about God judging Israel. The problem, though, is that John doesn't present the book of Revelation as being a regional thing, but as a universal, yeah. right? Um, and the Olivet Discourse, which is what they lean so heavily on, um, it doesn't depict the resurrection. Uh, and so there's some key elements that Revelation narrates that are not in the Olivet Discourse, which... I think does primarily look at Jesus judging Jerusalem and that was fulfilled in AD 70. But the point is that like, um, well, actually I forgot my original point. I was starting to talk about something. You're talking about the, the Perusia. Yes. Thank you. So Nicene Creed final. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I remember now. Um, so I was, I was really disturbed when the professor said that, because I had no category for understanding. Um, had you read the text before and just not felt the tension? Yeah, I had never really felt the tension. He forced me, right? And I think sometimes, and I'm not saying I grew up in a cult, but uh, I think when you're in cult-like environments, um, it's interesting how strong a control that has on your reading of the text, Yeah. right? Where everybody has to be on the in-group, and you're all speaking the same language. And it's interesting how you kind of all group think to read it a certain way. And, and that's where I think it's really healthy to talk to Christians that don't agree with you 
on some things, right? Or even non-Christians. I'm fascinated in the ways that non-Christians read the Bible. Now, they don't have the Holy Spirit, but um, they force me to look with different categories, right? And to, and ultimately, for the sake of evangelism, I have to be responsive to what they're seeing, yeah. right? I think the church needs to give a robust response to the technical term for this is the delay of the parousia, yeah. right? I don't think it was as big of a deal as people think because all the evidence suggests that while the church did believe Jesus was going to return very soon, you see that in Paul's letters. For Paul, when he realized towards the end of his life that Jesus was not going to return in his lifetime, he was at peace with that. You know, in his early letters, he's talking about Jesus coming and us being caught up in the clouds with him and everything. And by the time you get to Philippians, he's like, you know what? I get to depart and be with Jesus. You know, and so it wasn't this massive existential crisis, you know, um, and Jesus never gave dates, right? And so um, it wasn't as big of a deal as I think some people would want to make it, but it was, it was, it was significant. And, and so instead of having an answer, because I didn't have an answer, um, that really began my journey towards getting a PhD in the New Testament and really doing a lot of reading and study and prayer and reflection. And So and, do, you, do you still read that as the saddest thing ever written? No, how, I don't. How, no. Do you, how do you read it now? Yeah, I read it with great joy and anticipation um, because I finally connected the dots. And it's hard to communicate in a podcast, but um, the book of Revelation is a chiasm, which is just um, a fancy way to say that it begins where it ends. Yeah, and like the a, middle is significant. There's yeah, a pyramid. That's right. A pyramid's a great analogy. And and what you notice in the book of Revelation is we, he, we can link to a picture of a chiasm. There you go. Yeah, and I could share notes. I could share the one I drew up mm-hmm. um, with your people with our people. But um, basically when you read Revelation, uh, John doesn't jump into the future. Right? It opens with these seven letters to churches in Asia Minor, and it's for them now. Right? It's at that moment. It's, it's a message to them where Jesus is calling them to repent or he's encouraging them. And, Jesus, and then when you get to the end of Revelation, you have a return to the, those invitations that were for the present, not the future. And so what I'm getting at is when you read like the letter to Ephesus, for example, um, or actually I think it was Laodicea, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Notice that's in the present tense. Yeah. Behold, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and be with him. Right? It is exactly what Jesus promised in the upper room discourse, which John also wrote in John 13 through 17, where he said, when I ascend, I will send the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter. And when the comforter indwells you, right, I and the Father will also indwell you. You know, when you read the book of Acts, um, the, Jesus ascends at the beginning to the right hand of the Father. But he also comes back multiple times <laughs> Right? He comes back to uh, call Saul to be Paul. 
And then after Paul's been a faithful disciple and he's about to go into Rome and give his final witness, um, Jesus, it says Jesus comes to him and stands beside him and comforts him, right? That's parousia. And, you know, our church has different views about um, communion, but we do it every Sunday, right? Yes. And I think redemption is probably fair to say, I know this is Alhambra, that we we just let the mystery be. You know, we're, we don't get into arguments about consubstantiation, transubstantiation, and, and it's probably not worthwhile to unpack that meaning to our people right now. But basically, it's all these arguments throughout church history about the way in which Jesus is present when he says, take, this is my body. This is my body, yeah. Right, but in some sense, right, Calvin said, hey, that's the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, so is the Son. And, but there's something special about communion, right? And, and you could even look at that verse in Revelation as a communion-like verse, right? Like, yeah. open the door, I will come and be with you, right? As you remember me by taking bread and drinking wine. And so when I, when I say a microparousia, I would say Jesus comes to redemption churches every Sunday. Mm. That's great. Right? Um, and uh, he also comes to us individually in our readings of Scripture and our prayers and our devotions, and we'll have real connection with Jesus. Now, of course, all of that is a taste and that's why I'm using communion because it's a great method. Right? It's yeah. a, literally in that situation a taste, right? Um, he he isn't with us right now in the sense that the scrim's torn off, and because we can still be distracted and resistant and all that right now, just like the world. But but uh, so we we look forward. There's going to be a point in which we see Jesus face to face, and that's the parousia, right? Whereas, but we can see Jesus. Um, I think of Paul Miller's ministry, and I know Redemption's done a a lot of work with John Horry, and um, we're trying to bring See Jesus materials into our church, and that's the whole thing, right? See Jesus now, not then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. How much of that final Perusia is uh, terrifying versus just exciting? I can think about the arrival of Christ, and a lot of this book is very judgment. Right, like I think about the sevens that are everywhere. And when I think about sevens, my mind goes to creation and then it goes to uh, Jericho. You know, and how the sevens are making and unmaking a picture there. Yeah. And the threats and the curse, like the certainty of uh, lakes of fire, right? And rival, when I think about my personal connection to Jesus and my church's connection to Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, it seems very positive, but mm-hmm. then I read the revelation. It also seems foreboding and yeah. scary. How much of, how much of judgment is here in revelation? When we talk about like micro Prusia versus final Prusia. Yeah. I think this is deeply personal and there'll be times where I come to communion and um, it's joy, right? Like, you know, I can't wait to take the bread and drink the cup with my brothers and sisters. And there's a lightness in my soul and right. But then there'll be other times where I'm coming to the table and there'll be a heaviness and a sense of conviction. Right. And there'll be an invitation to repent. 
um, which is a very common experience, right? And so I think there's going to be multiple experiences when the parousia happens, when Jesus comes to us face to face. In 1 John, John warns us, right? And he says, um, abide in Christ so that when he comes, you don't shirk away in shame. So that that's one possible scenario, right? Where I will look at Jesus someday, but I will ultimately be staring into the face of a stranger, right? Because there's no faking, right? That's what unveiling means. There's no hiding, yeah. right? And I think of the Sermon on the Mount, where you're going to have people who prophesied in Jesus's name and cast out demons and did miraculous works, and they're going to be pretty confident when they stand before Jesus. But then Jesus is going to look at them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Right? And then you've got like the 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 uh, sheep and the goats parable in Matthew 25, where I would say where the, the place I want to be, I definitely don't want to be the goats, right? Uh, who were oblivious to the invitations to be responsive to the gospel, right? Throughout mm-hmm. life. I want to be the sheep, but who were the sheep? You know, it's interesting. Jesus praises them, but they respond in humility, right? When, when did I visit you in prison? When did I feed you? Right? When did I, they're oblivious, right? Like they, they're righteous, but they're not self-righteous. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and it, it, it gives him the, it's like the parable of the, of like not sitting at the place of honor at the banquet, right? Yeah. But when the master of ceremonies comes, he says, hey, come up here and sit with me. Let me elevate you, right? That, there's all kinds of teachings in the gospels that talk about that. And Paul. Right, there's no glory before the cross. Philippians two, right? Yeah. Be a servant to one another, and all that. And so, I think humility is a key piece there. Where I think my hope would be, when I see Jesus face to face, I would be filled with hope, <laughs> right? But I hope I don't like walk into His presence and I'm like, here I am, Right. And, 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 and I want to be careful how I say this. It's usually at this point in a podcast where I start saying stupid stuff, but there's a little bit of me, like, I don't frankly want to walk in there and be like, Hey, this is my interpretation of justification. So therefore you must. Yeah. Right. Or, Oh yeah. Justification by faith alone. Um, okay. Now I'm going to hold you to it. Jesus. Uh, that seems unnatural to me. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be quoting doctrine when I'm staring him in the face. Um, I, I think it will be awesome, overwhelming. Um, on the other hand, I'm also going to be looking into the face of a friend. And I ultimately believe I'm going to be looking into the face of my, of my and hear me when I say this in a metaphor, my groom, yeah, my husband, my, like, I'll be looking into the it's consummation consummation and so it's going to be an excitement there's going to be a love but um but obviously deep respect honor um an incredible sense of being privileged right i i think i'll be like isaiah woe is me not not maybe isaiah in the sense that that's pre-cross and everything but there'll be a bit of like me (laughs) you know yeah i i you know i but i also think 
I'll finally see me through his eyes. Mm. Right. See me and and I'll see, and I'll see how beautiful we are. Mm. Yeah. That's my prayer anyway. That's captivating. That anticipation, that eagerness, you know, I've we've been thinking about even in Romans eight, we've been preaching through this. There's this waiting with eager longing. Yeah. You know, and I've been thinking about how there's a lot of different types of waiting. There's waiting on test results, which is deeply anxious. There's uh, waiting for pain to stop, which is like the hope of relief. You know, waiting for the pain meds to kick in, you know, for the headache to go away. Then there's like waiting for the brownies to come out of the oven, which is just a, it like lightens the mood. Mm, I love that. You know, there's, it's just an eager anticipation. Yeah. And how I think Christians have both of those senses. There's the how long, oh Lord waiting for the pain to stop waiting. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the brownies are in the oven. And mm-hmm. any minute now, I'm going to hear a ding, and I'm going to get to feast, and there's not going to be a stomachache afterwards because it's this second coming of Jesus. It's mm-hmm. not a plate full of brownies. So that, that like lightness of eagerness is like when I hear the word, I'm coming soon, I hear like the the effect of that is meant to be this mood-lightening, of almost like a trivialization, I can't mm-hmm. think of the word. Is that the word? Of you know the, the glory that's to be revealed, not worth comparing. Like there's a, a hopefulness there. Um, going back to maybe more like argumentative question here. Uh, so there's all these arguments about the Revelation. How to read it? What's the right way to read it? Uh, there's amill, premill, postmill, pre-trib, post-trib, idealist, futurist, historicist eclecticist, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How, how important are all those arguments uh, versus if those aren't the most important thing, what is the most important thing? Like, so the question of how might we really get this book wrong mm-hmm. and what are places that we might disagree about that don't totally change the, our ability to actually submit to the text? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, we can remember that the blessing is hearing and obeying. It's not hearing and getting into endless debates. Yeah, or hearing and perfectly <laughs> understanding every detail. Or perfectly understanding every detail. Because, um, like I said earlier, the accent falls on seeing. And so John is writing what he sees. He's not necessarily explaining what he sees. And so there could very well have been things that he saw that he himself didn't understand, right? And that's okay um, because he's seeing God, and there's going to be a lot of God that we're never going to understand, even when we relate to him eternally. We'll never reach the bottom of God, right? So um, I think allowing for ambiguity um, is okay, and the book of Revelation, I think, forces that ambiguity, and, and some people get uncomfortable with it. But you're not going to have good theology without ambiguity and mystery, right? And that's just a part of maturation. So so I think I would encourage, as we all preach through the text and as our people read through the text, of allowing the mystery to be there, um, not becoming overly anxious when we don't understand the minutiae in every detail, right? It's sort of like looking at a painting and you zoom into the pixels and you lose context. Um, at the end of the day... That's, that's a great example yeah. of 
you you can overzoom on the photo and right. miss the entire picture. Yeah, or even just focusing on a little piece of the picture and missing the thing. And and the the big picture is um, seeing Christ, seeing Jesus. That's what it is. Like the word apocalypsis in the opening, the next two words are it's an apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that could be the Greek there is kind of ambiguous, which is fine because it allows two senses. You know, one is this is a revelation that comes from Jesus, which is true because he gives the words to John. But the Greek could also be that it is a revelation of Jesus. And so what is the big picture of revelation? It's Jesus in his full glory, or you could even say the throne room of God. And there's even a Trinitarianism there, right? Um, That as long as we keep zooming out, and worshiping, that's our ultimate response in Revelation because it's in a church context to begin with, right? And uh, also, I think, then the second piece is you're blessed if you obey. Well, what does it mean to obey Revelation? I don't think it means to have eschatology conferences and do conspiracy theories on social media. Um, I think what he means there is... So I should cancel my conspiracy theory social media conference? No, not necessarily. <laughs> you know, um, maybe you can redeem it, but uh, and I didn't say they're evil, right? I mean, um, I I went to all kinds of eschatology conferences when I was a kid, um, and they were fun. Mm-hmm. And 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 the Lord could be the Lord is in that too, you know, yeah. because there is. Yeah, I want to be careful and not overstate it. Um, y- you know, just because there's an embarrassing aspect of the Bible doesn't get us off the hook with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if 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 predictions of the future is super unpopular now among the intelligentsia and uh, people are looked down upon for reading the Bible literally, um, I'm not going to participate in that. You know, that's that's um, elitism. And so have at it. You know, I'd be like, hey, I know there's going to be people in our churches that will have a dispensational lens and 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 and, you know, read it. I would encourage them to um, honor where they're coming from, you know, and, and, and they may not totally agree with what you or another preacher is saying over, over the pulpit. Uh, I do know we're going to have some people from an all-millennial reform background that will read passages differently. I think what I would just say, though, is we all need to step back. Yeah. You know what I mean? We all need to step back. We're all holding to the Nicene Creed. You know what I mean? Like none of us are full preterists, at least preaching. Yeah. <laughs> or at least they ought not to be. Yeah. yeah. And, Lord, and Lord help us if yeah. anybody is. Yeah. And so as long as at, at the end of when you're done preaching, Seth, they take communion. And if they're responsive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in the word, in the text and through your preaching or Luke's preaching or Aaron Daly's preaching, Wayne Winters, right? Then they are obeying Revelation. You know what I mean? And yeah, and, I and that. If, if that means them repenting, if it if it means them healing, and so they're just you know they're talking about how much they're suffering, and they're giving voice to that, their brokenness, right? They're giving Jesus the opportunity, who was broken but resurrected, to meet them, yeah. right? Yeah, that's helpful. I, I think it's important for me as a preacher to know that there's virtually 
I would say there there is no shot that every person who reads Revelation is going to agree about everything in Revelation. There's just no chance of that. It's just not happening. Uh, partially, it's this nature of images. You, know, you look at a painting. What do you see? Right? You might agree on the big picture of painting, but like what it's doing, like there's just reality of that. And so insisting on over-agreement or maligning forms of disagreement is actually pure folly, and it will create that same kind of cultish dynamic that you warned about earlier. Could you imagine going to a museum, right, and the docent tells you how to interpret a Van Gogh painting, right? <laughs> like, Here's what you and, must and you, see. Yeah, you, this is what you must see, right? Whereas, no, every docent I've ever... I'm not sure I know what the word docent means. Um, any, any tour guide in a museum, right, or any person that appreciates art, you know, I'm an artist, I paint, um, on Instagram... <laughs> Would you like to plug your handle? No, I don't need art? to plug my handle. It's all right. Just search. It's John just Del John Del Husay. <laughs> yeah. It's really creative, but uh, but yeah, I paint and and um, I don't tell people how to interpret it. Um, it's evocative, right? I'm much more interested in what it's doing in them. Hmm. What if that's actually a genuine part of reading the Bible? Like, what what if John wanted to evoke something? Yeah. with the Holy Spirit in his audience, allowing for multiple readings, right? Um, some uh, churches are uncomfortable with that. But to me, as long as there is some control, which I would say is the literal sense, the first sense of the quadriga, and, and I would say that all our pastors really need to be careful to not just jump into allegory, Yeah, right? But having said that, I think every single one of us is going to have private meanings come to us as we're sitting with revelation. You know what I mean? I think yeah. every single one of us is going to see it differently. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is a person. Therefore, we have personal experience with him. There you go. And, and, and as long as it's private and I don't take my personal experience and then put it over the pulpit, thereby dehumanizing or depersonalizing your experience, right? What I'm saying is, is it's a subtle thing, yeah. right? Because you could see how if someone's not understanding me, it would be sort of like relativism when it comes to doctrine. And, and no, you know, a role that an elder or lead pastor is supposed to have is that we keep our people true to the deposit of faith that was once and for all delivered to us, right? That becomes the Nicene Creed. Yes. Or the Apostles' Creed. So there's just no ambiguity at that level. Jesus is coming again. But that doesn't mean, though, that there can't be this um, evocative plurality of experiences with the Bible, right? That yeah. in, a word for it's almost like play, you know, to play, to be creative, to listen, to be open, right? It would be wonderful for our people over the next year or however long we're going to be doing this series to play. Yeah. Right. And listen to what the Holy spirit is showing them in the, in the, in the, in the revelation. That's great. Along those lines, uh, I have one main question here that I want us to begin to end here with this is when you think about being an elder at Alhambra, and you're praying for your people as 
you begin to lead them into the book of Revelation, how are you praying for your local expression of the church, but then also like all the churches that might be preaching Revelation this fall across the globe? How would you pray for all of us and then also your local expression? What are the, what are the prayers? Yeah, I, I appreciated you. You emailed me or texted me a few days ago in, you know, preparing for our time together. And in all honesty, Seth, I had not been praying for the church specifically about Revelation. Um, it wasn't on my radar. As you know, there are other issues <laughs> that are pressing, you know, yeah. with the church and ministry and everything. And and so I took that as an invitation. I was like, wow, I haven't actually been praying about Revelation and its impact. Um, I'm getting ready for a sermon in 1 John mm-hmm. in a few weeks. Um, but, uh, but I did. So I sat with that and, um, you know, I think it's important to not be embarrassed of the Bible, but to not shame Christ. Mm. And um, my prayer is that our church would continue to mature because immature Christians, when they read the book of Revelation, it causes harm. Mm. How, and, how so? and for 2,000 years, I've seen that pattern. Right, like it goes back to um, the Montanists, for example, where they were not properly discipled. They simply believed that the Holy Spirit was speaking through them, and they interpreted the Book of Revelation in a way that turned people against the bishop, turned people against the pastor, the priest, and. You're the beast. That you're the beast, right? It, they kind of did what the reformer, what Luther did. With the Pope. There's the beast right there. I see him. (laughs) Right. And that's where we are not going to follow that Protestant reading. Um, But uh, we're not just going to start calling Joe Biden the beast because we're reading Revelation right now. And he's the power figure, the beast. There he is. So here's the thing, right? That's I'm so glad you brought that up because that's you're saying historically people do that. That's what they do. Right. And, 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 And you know what? There may very well be people in our church that believe that Joe Biden is the Antichrist just as some thought Trump was, right? And others thought he was the savior. So, um, you know, here's the thing. I can see where they get there. You know what I mean? Because a part of personal experience is you're coming to the Bible and you are looking at your immediate life through that lens, right? And you're going to make these connections. You're going to make, you know, these analogies and so on. And we could get into a long extended debate. Joe Biden is the Antichrist. Joe Biden's not the Antichrist. All I can say is I'm a historian, and I have seen a thousand Joe Biden discussions in church history. That's all I'm going to say. And guess what? It turned out that that wasn't the Antichrist. Yeah. Right? To the degree that there are many Antichrists and all that, all that, what that means, you know, is something that's going to be perennially or like always debated, I think, until the parousia happens, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's okay to have space for that because how can I celebrate plurality of readings and not allow someone to see Joe Biden as the Antichrist? Yeah. You know what I mean? May not be right, but um, that's that's where that person is. But I think, I hope that isn't come, that doesn't come over the pulpit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I think, I think we have a, we have a responsibility not to private readings, 
but to public edification and exhortation. Yeah. Right. And so to, you know, our role is to go as far as the literal sense can take us, acknowledge in humility where Christians will disagree on some eschatology. Right. Um, But then at the end of the day, let's all bow our heads. Right. You know, um, and uh, I want to give you some space to notice what the Holy Spirit's doing right now in your heart. Yeah. Right. What, what is, what part of your assimilation to our culture is being exposed? Right. You could, because oftentimes what people do, right, is they start talking about Joe Biden, and all that is is resistance. Yeah, it's cover for— It's cover. I'm trying to not be personally impacted. Exactly. So I'm trying to externalize something. And that's my prayer for our church, is that we wouldn't run to cover by turning this into a pathetic argument about eschatology. Yeah. But rather—because anytime I talk to a mature Christian— and they read Revelation, you know what I hear? It's like, ah, oh, there's some interesting stuff, and I didn't understand everything, but they're edified by it, mm. right? And there's something about just being formed by Jesus that you can see Jesus in the book of Revelation. You can also acknowledge the code language and some of the challenges, but at the end of the day, you're listening and you're responsive, right? And uh, many people um, towards the end of their lives come back to revelation and all that junk has been removed. And for them, it's just studying for their finals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. That So that question you asked, how am I being assimilated into the secular culture or I forget exactly how you said it, but that question, like that's my same prayer for myself and our church is that we'd ask that question every week is where am I, overly assimilated into the American culture and under assimilated into the kingdom of God and being confronted by that. And that this, in this podcast, we talk about how we critique the hell out of culture mm-hmm. and we don't mean we critique it a lot. What we're, what we're meaning is like there is, there are hellish things in the culture and what that ends up being is we end up having to get personal. Like where is there hell in me? And, yeah. And, and that to me is almost always answered in the same way as in which way have I been overly assimilated into the broader culture and under assimilated into the kingdom of God. That's the hell that's in me is that gap. And that's the, that's the hope of revelation. Uh, any last words you'd have to us as we uh, move towards this, this will, uh, this podcast is coming out about two months before we actually go through the book of revelation. And I'm sure people might reference it from time to time. Um, but any final warnings, exhortations, hopes, hopes, dreams, concerns, threats, accusations? <laughs> yeah, well, one is, uh, Seth, you know, you and Luke are very responsible teachers. And so anyway, I, yeah, it, it was, it's a joy to work with you. And I think what I'm noticing right now is uh, over the last couple months, I've had the opportunity to sit down with pastors and elders of other redemption churches, communities. Um, and this is important. You know, I, I love that you and I here sitting at this table, uh, Alhambra and Gateway are connected. You know, we are one church. 
within the larger one church, the Bride of Christ. But uh, it's, um, you know, I there's in my heart, I would yearn for even more connections among the ten congregations, and and so relationally speaking, this is this is important. It was worth the forty five minute drive. So. Well, I hope you still feel like that after the second 45-minute drive home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I will. Yeah, it, I, I'm encouraged by this as well. I mean, when we first met, and we were both at other churches, and we're part of the one church. I think you were at Camelback at the time, and I was at Grace at the time. Yeah. Or maybe you're somewhere else. No, maybe. I think I was at Camelback. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's this the reality that the visible church... Uh, really has a difficult time faithfully representing the invisible church of all God's people and tables and conversations is uh, the location. So thanks for sitting down and talking. Uh, my privilege, and thank you. Those of you here listening, uh, thank you for tuning in. If you uh, have any questions or concerns, uh, feel free to email John Delhuse about the, all those. <laughs> uh, Otherwise, uh, love to hear from you. But if you want to uh, share this with other folks, uh, if you're encouraged by it, uh, there's a lot of questions in the book of Revelation that we did not even come close to touching. And so uh, even as we preach through it over the course of a whole semester, we will not come close to touching all of the questions. And so we hope it serve as a faithful introduction. But more than anything else, uh, thanks for listening and share with anybody who you think we blessed. Thanks for coming, John. Hey.